If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to that passage, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. And yes, it is a longer passage. And yes, Tony has already warned you of my uh, inclination to go long, but I will just remind you of the words of the great expositor, sermonettes make Christianettes. Uh, that was my dad uh, who said that, but I'm going to take it. I don't normally appeal to my dad, but I'll do this so today. This is the second of three weeks that we'll spend focusing on the, the three core values that we've kind of articulated as a church, gospel, community, and mission. Last week, we looked at the gospel through uh, the, the lens of the, the life of Zacchaeus or this little kind of story of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And this morning we'll look at community and we'll specifically look at the reality that the church is a, an already and not yet community that is formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again real quick. I don't want you to miss it. The church is an already and not yet community that is formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians is neatly divided into really two parts. And this passage comes really at the, the pivot point between part one and part two. In uh, the first half of the book, Ephesians, or, uh, the Apostle Paul has been articulating and, and explaining the gospel to the Ephesian believers. And in a, a chapter 1, in the first half of, of chapter 2, he's been giving this grand picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and how it has been by the grace of God that the Ephesian believers have come to know their own sin and understand their need for rescue, but also how it is that grace of God who has entered into their life and called them out of death and into life. It is a, a kind of a glorious exposition of the grace of God in the gospel. And so we, we don't want to move past that too quickly. Christians, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, everything we'll talk about is founded on that premise, and that is that you are a Christian by the grace of Jesus Christ. It is only because of what he has done. In fact, in chapter 2, he explicitly says, not by your works, but by the grace of God. It is not by anything that we have done. It is what he has done for us. Now in the second half of chapter 2, he shows that that gospel brings together both Jew and Gentile. It was a particular concern in the Ephesian church that the Jews and the Gentiles, both followers of Jesus, had, had been brought together into a, a right relationship with God and therefore into the same family with one another. If you want to look at chapter 2, verse 14, this is what Paul says. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see there that the gospel brings us to God and into communion with one another. There is no longer hostility between Jew and Greek, but now they are both one. And in chapter 3, what Paul says is it is actually God's purpose in doing this, in forming this, this one new combined community to declare to the principalities, to the powers, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, God's own wisdom. It's almost like God's just, God's just kind of showing off in, in, in this new community. You can see it in verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul says, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
So part of the glory and the majesty and the wisdom of God in the gospel is, is wrapped up, Paul says, in how this gospel creates one new united community that is together declaring the grace of God. Right? It is part of God's majesty in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just that he's saving individuals, not just that he's rescuing people from sin, but he's rescuing all kinds of people from their sin. And then he's bringing those people to himself. And as he brings them to himself, he brings them together. And he's, it's almost like he's, he's forming this little community in the church. And then he's looking around to all that he's created. And he's saying, you see what I just did? You see what I just did? I've got little kids and they get so excited about any little accomplishment. Uh, my daughter has recently discovered that she can stand on one foot. And, uh, and she'll just, dad, watch this trick. Daddy, watch this trick. And I'm waiting for the trick, and then I realize that's the trick, right? But, but when, we, when we feel like we've accomplished something, we, we kind of have this tendency, we want to we show it off, right? Well, the Lord has accomplished something majestic through the gospel, right? He has done something amazing in bringing these people from, from the, that were far off in the Gentiles and then his rebellious people in the Jews, and he said, it is through Christ himself that I'm doing something amazing. Check it out. And he shows that the, the way he shows it off is through the church. And yet, we get to chapter four and we see that this divine reality, this reality that the gospel creates one unified, rescued, redeemed people, does not automatically produce a lived reality in his people's lives. It is not the case that just because what God is actually in fact doing in creating one united redeemed people, it does not necessarily automatically mean that in the life, the, 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 the work of our daily lives, flesh and bones on this earth, that, that that gospel is automatically played out in a unified, redeemed, perfected people. In other words, like so much of the Christian life, the Christian community exists in a tension of both already and not yet. We are already fully accepted by God as individuals. If you are in Christ, there is nothing standing between you and the God who created you. You are fully acceptable to him because of what Jesus has done. And because of that, he has brought you together in every way with everyone else he's ever saved. He's brought you into his one redeemed family. <clears throat> but as we live here and now, we still struggle with sin, don't we? The redemption that is in fact ours, the rescue that is in fact ours, hasn't totally manifested in our lives, has it? We still struggle with sin, and because we struggle with sin, when you bring that family together, all of those redeemed persons together into a community, we don't fully look like what we have been declared to be and what we have been called to be. That is why, if you turn to the passage that we've got today, at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul opens up this kind of pivot where he's saying, let me show you how this gospel plays itself out. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
You've been called, you've received this grace, but now there is this not yetness that has to be grown out of. We have to, we have to walk in the calling. The Ephesians had received the gospel. The gospel had, in fact, rescued and redeemed them. It had formed a new community, but they had not yet actually been fully transformed so that their community reflected the fullness of the gospel that saved them. This is the same tension that we exist in today, isn't it? It really explains a lot about uh, our church in particular and about the church more broadly, where we can talk loftily about what God is doing and how, how the, the gospel brings people from all different backgrounds together and it creates unity out of diversity and all different backgrounds and languages and peoples and nations. And, and, and we fully believe that to be true. And yet, we look inside the church and we feel the tension. We feel the existence of the not yet right. We feel the existence of the fact that, that this redemption that is really, we really believe to be true has not yet fully transformed us into this kind of perfect community. It explains why outsiders can look at the church and point to sin inside the church and say, see, they don't really believe what they, they, they say they believe. It's because the sin is still there and the wrestle and the not yetness of the gospel taking root. It, it really opens us up to say, you guys are not being consistent. And the reality is, it's true. It also explains a lot about why you can come into a church like this that values community, that preaches community, that claims community, that offers community. And yet sometimes it can really still be a little difficult to not feel like you're alone. See, a lot of times we're tempted to be surprised by that, be caught off guard and say, what is this? I thought, that, I thought we promised community to everybody. I thought this was going to be the, the, the new, redeemed, reformed community. This is going to be the people of God where everybody is sharing everything in common in an Acts 2 or Acts 4 kind of way. What, what's happening? And the answer is very clear according to the Apostle Paul. The church is the reality that is in this tension of already and not yet. And that is not to excuse our failures, but it does explain them. It does, in fact, show, uh, explain why you can be in this community. And guys, it can be hard. It can be difficult to belong in the redeemed community, can't it? We'll see that in just a second. And so before we dive into the text uh, and walk through it, I just want to uh, go ahead and set us up from the beginning of how I think that this text needs to, to land on different groups of people here. The first is, is for the unbeliever. If we have any non-Christians in the room, I just want to tell you that we fully believe that you were created for community. And I don't have time to get into all of this, but when God created humanity, he created them to exist in community. And the promise of the gospel is that you would receive that community both with God. You would receive communion with him. You would receive reconciliation with him. Instead of alienation from the God who created you, there would be reconciliation. But also that as he reconciled you, he brings you into the, the community of his people. So the promise of the gospel is, in fact, a new community. And the church... The church more broadly and churches just like this are, are imperfect kind of foretastes. We're uh, imperfect samplings of a future perfected community of people, all of whom have been res re rescued and redeemed by the grace of God in Christ. The church is, is a taste of what it ought to be. 
but it does point to something. And so as we look at this text, let it point not just to the imperfections of the community here and the church more broadly, but let it point through those things to the perfect Savior who has done the work on our behalf. The whole point of the gospel message is we know we don't measure up, but we know the one who does. And so as we talk about the Christian community, even let the community of believers and what we're striving to be and walk in, let it point through the imperfections to the one who is doing the perfecting, and that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Secondly, I want to speak to to Christians who might be uh, keeping the church at arm's length a little bit. This would be Christians who maybe are regular attenders or you like the idea of church, whether this one or another, but you've you've not decided to commit yourself to a local body of believers. Friends, I just want you to know that we know that the local church is imperfect, but we also believe it is indispensable. There are some things that the gospel is doing in us that can only be done in the context of the local church community. There are some ways in which the gospel takes root in our lives and transforms us and reshapes us that can only happen when we're in the community of saints. So this is one of the reasons that we take membership in the local church so seriously. It is not because we want to be exclusive. It's not because we want to be controlling. It's not because we want to have like a secret handshake or anything like that. Trust me, if you join the church... There's nothing cool like that. There's no member's jacket or anything. Um, That would be awesome, I guess, but we don't have that, okay? That is not why we want to push and, and encourage and exhort one another to take membership in the local church seriously. Rather, it's because the, the reality is the gospel is a community-forming force in the life of the Christian. It propels us towards other Christians, to receive the grace of Christ in the gospel, but to reject the grace of Christ in his church is radically inconsistent. And I think for our for development in the Christian life, it's, it's just dangerous. To say, I want Jesus in this area, but I don't want his people just doesn't work. And trust me, Jesus is not really interested in that. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of following him we want. And so as we study this text, I just want to ask you, how is it that you plan to follow the Lord and still keep his people at arm's length? What's your plan for following the Lord Jesus Christ and still saying that you can take or leave the church or maybe you can kind of hang around on the fringe of his people? And then I would just ask, what keeps you from giving yourself to this imperfect but gospel-formed community that we call the local church. It doesn't have to be this one, but friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, give yourself to a local church. Commit yourself to the people of God. It is there, it is there that God will do something that he doesn't do in other contexts because it's very ingrained into the very nature of the gospel. That's where he wants to reform his people. That's where he wants to, to remake them. And thirdly, I wanna talk to IDC members or members of other local churches, the gospel has formed this community. The Lord Jesus Christ has made this community. That's that's a fact. That's a reality. That's the already. But we have not yet been fully transformed. And church family, I think we need to feel and understand the weight of that. This church is not done. We do not look like we ought And we do not look like we one day will. 
And so because of that reality, because we gotta hold on to that, we, are, we, IDC Raleigh, we are in the midst of this already and not yet. God is doing something glorious and he has done something glorious here and yet we are not who we ought to be. And so to that, I would just say, first, do not be discouraged. Don't give up. And on some level, don't be surprised. You will find the warts of this church. We've said this in the membership class for years. You come on in, find, join the church, it's, you're going to find that it's not a perfect church. And if it was, you would mess it up because you enter as a sinner. But you don't really do that. The sinner's already here. The brokenness is already here. And the not yetness is already here. So don't get discouraged when you find it. Don't give up when it, when it kind of punches you in the teeth that, hey, this, this group of people, we're imperfect. We fail. We fall. But secondly, the second thing I want to encourage you is don't hold back. This church is imperfect. We are in the not yet, but what Paul is encouraging us to do, do you notice that language? I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you. He's got this, this guttural yearning for the people of God to press into the community, to walk in that community as part of their new life in the gospel. And so don't get discouraged, don't give up, don't be surprised, and don't hold back. We have work to do. By the grace of God, it is his grace that has rescued us and brought us into this community, and it is his grace that will carry us through the community and continue the work that he's begun. And so I have, I have four commitments I want us to make this morning for the already not yet community. Four commitments that we can make from this text for the already not yet community. The first one is that we will cultivate gospel community through our actions and attitudes towards one another. We will cultivate gospel community through our actions and attitudes toward one another. You can see this in the first three verses as a whole. It's kind of striking where Paul, Paul begins by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's this lofty language. He wants you to walk in this gospel. And then he immediately goes to just kind of some relational virtues with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. These first few verses, verses show us that growing into the community of Christ that he has called us to be, it will not happen primarily through the extraordinary and exceptional and fantastic events of our lives. It won't happen if we just move from, from high point to high point. Instead, the, the, the community will be transformed. We will cultivate this gospel community as we, in the, the mundane and the everyday relating to one another as brothers and sisters. These virtues are, are not difficult to understand, are they? But they're terribly difficult to possess. I mean, listen to the humility. You get it, right? Do you have it? Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. It's almost like the, the church is going to Paul and saying, what does it take? And he's just saying, oh, yeah, 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 here are the virtues that you need to have. And then he just kind of moves on by. I don't know if you've ever talked with like a professional athlete or maybe he's just somebody who's incredibly skilled at what they do, especially with, with like physical things, maybe like a mechanic or something like that. And you just say, hey, can you explain to me what you're doing right there? And they're like, yeah, I mean, especially like a golfer. If you ever talk to a golfer, you're just like, oh, tell me what you're doing. Well, you just got to line up your hips and then you just got to do a little, you know, and that what happens when you're talking to somebody who's really good at what they do is they reach a point where they stop using words and just say sounds, right? You just do a little, whoop, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And you're like, 
that's not helpful, first of all. And second of all, I think I see what you're doing, right? I mean, you, you watch the NBA on some level, like you can follow everything that's going on, but there's a massive gap between what you see them doing and if they were to like, you just do this, as though it was just commonplace. Well, of course, you just, you just shoot the three from like, you know, 30 feet. Uh, what? Like, is 30 feet a three? I don't know, somebody help me out. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, Tony, Tony got me. Uh, you don't just do that. It's, it's easy to say, it's really hard to do, and my body just doesn't work that way, right? It's almost like Paul is saying that. Here's, here's what it's gonna take to cultivate on the regular gospel community. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, love. These are not hard to understand, but brothers and sisters, they do not come naturally. They do not come easily. They do not come once for all. Do you notice that? All of these kind of have a continuing sense in them. Bearing with one another, it's not just a one-time thing. It's kind of embedded into the definition. You, you keep bearing. I think I've said this before, but the idea of bearing with one another just kind of, it just throws out the idea that the Christian community and life in it is gonna be easy. It might not even be fun. Okay, and I want to give you permission to not say that you come in every week or you go to your growth group and it's just awesome. Like you can point to how this is just the highlight of your week. Friends, it's okay if that's not true. Like it's not failure necessarily if that's the case. Paul knows that it's going to be hard. He wouldn't use the language of bearing with if it wasn't going to be, be difficult, You don't bear with things that are enjoyable. You just enjoy them. You bear with things that are difficult. Tony is bearing with his teenagers. They might be great, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, he's bearing with this season. His wife is not there, okay? Uh, You just, you kind of have to endure it. Brothers and sisters at IDC, what is it that you are having to bear with today? And there's, it's going to grind on you, and it's going it's gonna to be, be hard. It's going to wear on you. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be trying. It's going to come and go. And I just want you to know the Apostle Paul is not surprised by that. He's got a word of exhortation to you. You have been called in the grace of Christ. Continue in that calling. Bear with it. Have patience and gentleness. I'm struck by some of these because I think that we, are, we approach them almost as though as long as we're not the opposite, we're doing all right. We, we work towards humility by just working on not being prideful. We work towards gentleness by just not being harsh. And I think that's, that's good, but I think there's more to be done there, isn't it? It's not the same thing as cultivating gentleness as just not being harsh. Patience, we could say the same thing. And all of this he tells us to do in love. Why? In verse 3, he tells us, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He tells us we've got the unity. That's what chapters one through three have been about. We've got the unity now to maintain that unity. It is is this attitude, this collection of attitudes and actions that we have towards one another. This is our default ongoing posture. If we are going to maintain that unity, this is where it's that, this is the continuing posture. If we're going to maintain the unity that God has created in the gospel, you know what it's gonna look like? It's gonna look like particular actions and attitudes towards one another. There's a towardsness in this. You see, you see it here? All of these things are relational in nature. Gentleness, 
patience, bearing with one another in love. The Christian community, as, as Christ-like character takes root, as we walk in the gospel, it directs us towards our brothers and sisters. I don't think it's too strong to say that the, the primary, the first application of the gospel in the Christian life, the first movement that we take is towards the Christian community. Yes, we look out to the lost and we share the gospel and we make disciples and we go to the nations, yes, but the most kind of inner circle reaction to the gospel taking root in our lives is we look at our brothers and sisters. And when we do, we don't just say, kumbaya, this is awesome. We bear with them. We have humility and patience and gentleness towards them. So the first commitment that we have to make is that we will cultivate gospel community through our actions and attitudes towards one another. The second is that we will ground gospel community in our common confession. You'll notice in verses four through six, this kind of almost creed-like repetition. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. When I say that we're going to ground the gospel in our common confession, I, I mean that this is the source, this is the foundation of the community. We, we have this community built on the foundation that there is one God. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith. There is a singularity, there is a particularity. We confess one gospel. It is one gospel confession that we make. And it, our unity is fundamentally grounded in the fact that there is only one God. And there, he only has one gospel. And he only has one people that he's making. So if you want to be with that God, if you want to be rescued into his family, you will be brought into his people. We don't get to pick and choose and say, I like this people over here, not this people over here. Friends, there is only one God, and he only has one people. He only has one gospel. That is the grounding, the foundation, the source of our unity. But notice also, we've got the, the emphasis on the oneness, but also on the, the allness. You see, in verse 6, it's repeated four times. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is a real challenge to us as we try to divvy ourselves up into different camps and categories. This is, this is a real challenge to us as we try to form community based on our, our interests. There's something off about the idea of, of forming a church around our common interest in board games. I'm glad you like board games, but that is not the thing that unifies us. It is, it is not, we've been playing Catan a lot. We've discovered Catan in the last like five or six months. You might be uh, a big Catan fan. Uh, we found that we talk about Catan a lot. I'm doing it right now. Uh, some of you guys have been invited to come over and experience Catan. We know it's nerdy, okay? We're just owning it. But it would be a terrible thing for us to just form our community around this interest in a particular board game. That is not the source and grounding of our unity. And you know what? It won't catch everybody. It leaves people out. But you know what doesn't leave people out? The one gospel and the one God who sent it and his one baptism and his one spirit. It is a singularity of our foundation and it is comprehensive in its scope. It extends to all people. 
We don't get to find other sources of our community. We do not get to find other foundations for our relating to one another. It is this one God, and it is his one gospel, and that is what is going to unite all of us. So we'll ground the gospel, sorry, we'll ground gospel community in our common confession. Third, we will maximize gospel community as we receive and use Christ's diverse gifts. This one's fun. We will maximize gospel community as we receive and use Christ's diverse gifts. You see in verses 7 through 12, and I'm not going to read through all of it. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on to explain or kind of quote from or reference Psalm 68 verse 18, which I don't want to get into all the particulars of Psalm 68. We don't have time for that. But this is a, a victory psalm in which the, the conquering king has, has declared victory over his enemies. And when the king returns to his people, to his homeland, he distributes kind of the spoils of his victory. He gives to his people what he has won because he has gone out and conquered, because he has gone out and, and won his complete victory. And so in referencing this psalm and applying it to Jesus, what he's saying is the gospel story of Jesus coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying a death on our behalf, rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, this is the conquering king. That's what he was doing in the gospel. He was conquering all of his enemies. And you know what he does as he conquers? He gives gifts to his beloved people. He, he distributes the spoils of his victory. That's what he's saying is, is when he ascended on high, when he returns to his father, he's giving, he's giving gifts to his people. The Lord has graciously, just as we have by grace been received into this family, we exist in this family by his grace, and we grow in this family by his grace, and we serve in, his fam in this family by his grace. That's what these gifts are, is they are gracious gifts from our Lord and Savior. So what, what can we say about them? First, I've already mentioned it, that these gifts come to us by grace. You see it in verse 7. But grace was given to us. Know this, friend. Whatever gift you have to serve the church, whatever gift you have to advance his kingdom, whatever you gift you have to proclaim the glory and the majesty of God, you have that gift by grace. We don't get to claim credit for any of these things that we do. It is his glory, his grace working its way into us. He has given you that gift for the sake of advancing his kingdom and building up his, building up his church. The second thing I want you to see about these gifts is that he gives them to each of us in verse 7. Grace was given to each of us. Friend, Christian, if you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Lord has given you grace in the form of gifts. He wants to use you. He's not done. He's not just saving you and then done with you. He's saying, I'm saving you and now I'm gonna put you to work. Here's some gifts. Here's some tools, right? Here's some tools in your tool belt. Now, use them. Use them. What else can we say? These gifts are varied. You see it there. Each one of us has received gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is where we see diversity in the unity 
right? The verses one through six are, are in a lot of ways talking about the unity that is the gospel makes. It makes one body and we walk in that unity and we preserve that unity. But in that unity, there is great diversity of gifts. These gifts don't all look the same. These gifts manifest differently. It's okay that if you've got one gift and somebody else has another one that you think is pretty cool, it's, it's wrong, it's, it's almost uh, dishonoring to the Lord to wish and say, Lord, why didn't you give me that one? Why, why don't I get to do that thing over there? Why don't I get to have that gift over there? Instead, we should be worshiping this God for his good gifts. Let's get to a point where we can look at the gifts that our brothers and sisters have and celebrate with them the grace of God in their lives. We can rejoice with them what God is still doing in their lives as he's using them rather than the envy that makes us just say, I, I really want what he's got or, or maybe I wish that they did not have it. Unity is adorned by the diversity of gifts. And the diversity finds its source in this one true Lord. It is all from Christ. Another thing I want you to see about these diverse gifts is that they are meant to build the body up. This is why I say we'll maximize gospel community as we receive and use these gifts. As you can see in verse 12, that the purpose of these gifts is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We'll come back to that in just a second. But the last phrase, for building up the body of Christ. There's a lot of misunderstanding about uh, spiritual gifts more broadly, uh, maybe even about this verse, but I think it makes it very clear that the reason the Lord has given you gifts, if you're a Christian in the church, the reason he has given you gifts is to build up his body. The gifts that you have are not, and, and, and I want to say this very gently, but clearly, the gifts that you have are not about you. They are not for you. They are for the building up of the church. They are meant to build up the body of Christ. But friends, don't, don't because it's not about you, all of a sudden set it aside. I think they're, they're indispensable. This, verse is, this, this passage is telling us that, that the church needs your gifts. I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead real quick. Uh, look, in, look down in verse 16. It says, from whom, it's talking about Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each uh, part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you catch that? The body of Christ is equipped with everything that it needs to build itself up. We might rightly ask, who builds the church? And the pious answer to that, the Sunday school answer to that would be Jesus, right? That is not precisely what Ephesians 4 is telling us. Ephesians chapter 4 is telling us that who builds the church? The church builds the church. Now, I don't want to get too far off. Yes, Christ is building his church. But do you see what's happening here? How is it that Christ builds his church? The body uses the gifts that they've received so that when everything is working properly, the body grows and builds itself up in love. How amazing is that? Friends, if you're a member of this church, I don't care what gifts you have. I don't care if it's the, the, un, the uh, kind of the thankless gift, the behind the scenes gift, the teaching gift, the encouraging gift. I don't care what it is. This church needs you. 
it desperately needs you because whatever God is trying to do, if he's brought you here, we need that working part. And this church will not be able to grow itself up in love without the working parts of our members. This gospel community will be maximized, it will be adorned, it will be glorious as we receive and use the diverse gifts that God has given. Now, he does a little uh, aside here in verses 11 and 12 when he talks about the fact that some of these gifts have, are, are particularly marked as leadership gifts. I'm not going to go into a full explanation of 11 and 12, but he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Some of the gifts in the body have been given to the body as particular leadership gifts. So some have leadership gifts in the body, but make no mistake, all have ministry responsibility in the body. It is one of the, the, the kind of unfortunate downsides of kind of the professionalization of the clergy over the last couple hundred years that we imagine that the ministers, the pastors, they're the ones who do the ministry. That this right here that I'm doing, that this is ministry, and you guys are just receiving ministry. That is not what Ephesians 4 is telling us. What Ephesians 4 is telling us is that God has given the leaders in the church, not just the pastors and teachers, but also maybe the evangelists, those who are, 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 are skilled and equipped and gifted at making disciples. He's given the, the leadership in the church to do what? To equip the saints so that all the saints are doing ministry. Friend, we, we want to be a church that is not just receiving ministry, but we're being equipped for ministry. And the idea is that part of the way we get equipped is the Lord's gifts are being used. You can receive the gifting that God has given your brothers and sisters by receiving their equipping and then turning around and ministering out of that equipping. So some have leadership gifts, all have ministry responsibilities. We will maximize gospel community as we receive and use Christ's diverse gifts. Fourth and finally, we will realize gospel community as we pursue maturity together. When I say realize, I don't mean that we'll be like, oh, I just realized this. Like, oh, I just came to an understanding of that. What I mean is it will become real. Right? It will become a reality in our midst, this gospel community, as we pursue maturity together. Verses 13 through 16 paint this picture of a, a people that are using their gifts faithfully, energetically, selflessly, but purposefully, intentionally, for the purpose that the people of God are built up into full maturity you can see it in, in, over and over again. I'll just kind of uh, run through these verses. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then this is what he characterizes that in verse 13. To mature manhood. He also calls it the, the full measure of the stature, sorry, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In verse 15, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ. In every way. What is, the, what is the end, what is the goal of this church receiving and using the gifts of relating to one another in the gospel? It is that every person, every member, every one of us is grown up into full maturity. And so here's what I, I just want you to get from these few verses, that he is talking about all gifts being used. That's what we get in verse 16. The whole body, when every part is working together, builds itself up in love. All the gifts are necessary. Verse 16. The second thing I want you to see is the scope. It's for all members of the body. 
Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Do you know someone in this church that is not yet fully matured in Christ? The answer is yes. Brother, sister, part of your job as a member of this church is to help that person attain maturity. I don't care what the gap is. I don't know where their weakness is. I don't know where they're falling short is. All I know that is if you are in this church, part of your being here is so that every member of this church, kind of a no man left behind kind of thing. None of us will be left out of this maturity that he's calling us to. All gifts need to be used. All members must be matured. And that maturity must be an all kind of maturity. The fullness of Christ, mature manhood. In every way, we are to grow up into the head. What is left out of this maturity? Nothing. When have we gotten there? When every one of us looks like Jesus. All gifts, all members, all maturity. And that all maturity we can flesh out. We don't have time this morning. But you see, that all maturity is going to be looked like, marked by unity in verse 13, 13. Knowledge of Christ in verse 13. It's also in 13. Character of Christ, verse 13. It's going to be marked by correct doctrine in verse 14. It's going to be marked by growth and love in verse 16. Do you get the picture here? There is, there is a kind of an endless growing into the maturity that Christ has called us to. And we will realize and experience and see the, 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 the gospel community become a reality when together the church is orienting itself towards making sure that we all grow up into this Christ. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. It can't be. I want to say that again. It can't be. You cannot live the faithful Christian life in isolation. The gospel is inherently and necessarily a community-forming force. That's what God has done. That is what the gospel is telling us. And we as a church do not yet fully reflect that reality. Either as a church, the church, or as this local church body. But consider this, friends. Christ knew that we would be an imperfect people when he died for us. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew that this church would exist full of this church's imperfections, and yet he went to the cross anyway. But not only that, part of his purpose in going to the cross was rescuing this people for himself, his people for himself, so that he could perfect us. This is, the, this is the, not just the reality of the gospel right now, it's the promise of the gospel that God is not done with his work. He's not done, friends. He's not done with you. He's not done with me. He's not done with the Mago Day Church. And one day, the promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is returning and he is coming to fully and finally and forever purify his church, to purify his bride for himself and present her before himself without spot or blemish or any imperfection. The gospel community will then be finally and fully formed without any mistakes, without any tensions, without anything left to the side, without any of the bearing with. We won't have to bear with anymore, guys, because we will see Jesus face to face and he will say, I've completed the work that I began in you. 
That is what we have to look forward to. And that is the the hope, the vision that we hold on to as we look back at the grace that we have received and then we heed Paul's call in Ephesians chapter four. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of that call. We look back at what Christ has done. We look forward to what he will fully and finally do in the future. And in the meantime, we are already, but not yet, but we are walking in his grace. May we, by grace, learn to walk together in a manner worthy of the grace we have received. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your kindness to us in the church. Thank you for promising to one day fully and finally complete your work. God, I pray that you would help this church community. God, help us to hold fast to the gospel. Help us to to have a vision of what you are doing, to know the reality that you have made one single people but also, Lord, to to realize that we are not yet fully perfected. God, I pray specifically for those in this church that are struggling to experience the community that you've made. God, I pray that you would give them perseverance, you would give them hope, you would give them a special measure of grace to persevere, to press in, to hold on. God, we know that can be especially trying and difficult. But God, I pray for the rest of this church that we likewise will not be content knowing that there are pockets of us that are are lacking or not experiencing this grace. I pray that you would help us to reflect Jesus the way that you've called us to so that we would with humility and meekness and gentleness and love run to one another and so that together as everything is working as it ought to be, we would build ourselves up in love. In Jesus' name.